but before we actually get started, I'd like to take a moment to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land, as is the tradition of the Summer Foundation. For those of you who are not familiar with this um, <coughs> layout, that if you need to go to the toilet, it's just out down the ballet to the right, that way. <laughs> um, and Jacinta will be finishing up around 9.30 and you'll aim to have a very short break somewhere in there to have a bit of a stretch. Um, so if you hang on to them, that would be great. <laughs> um, I don't think Jacinta really needs much introduction. Um, she's a very well-known person to all of us. Um, she is a Professor of Applied Brain at both the Crowe University and the Sun Foundation. And she's got so much research behind her in so many broad areas. But I think the thing that really comes through in all of her research is the interest in the families and the people and the impact of the brain injury um, on that whole system. The thing, the, uh, the topic that she thinks is going to be talking about today is something that's been really growing and um, building a huge amount of research that's really looking at the connection between identity and social activity. So today's talk is actually called Developing and Maintaining a Sense of Self and Social Connection Several Years After Severe Brain Injury. Um, and Jacinta is going to entertain us. She's very happy for people to ask questions along the way. Um, and there should be some time at the end oh, to, yeah. to talk as well. Thank you, Jacinta. Thank you, Mark. There will definitely be time to talk um, at the conclusion. I do hope I don't take up a whole hour and a half, but if you ask questions along the way, we might. But, and feel free to do that because there's nothing worse than sitting there thinking, oh, that's a load of codswallop, I think I better correct this. Or when you have a great idea, I'm, I'm really happy for you to share that then. If we get a little bit too tangential, I might say let's wait until we get to, towards the end. It's lovely to see you all here this morning. I think it's such an early start. I'm really impressed. I'm impressed with myself <laughs> as well as with you. Um, and at that early in the morning, the traffic is a lot better. Um, so I might have learned something really important. Um, as, as Marg said, what we're going to talk about this morning, what I want to share with you is some wonderful wisdom that I happen to gain from talking to a great group of, group of people with very severe brain injury over a fairly um, long period of time about their sense of self. What I was really keen to get an idea about through this piece of research was how do people with very severe brain injury see themselves quite a few years, many years post-injury in fact. There's a lot in the literature that, that talks about this loss of sense of self and, and reconstruction of self. So what I was acutely aware of was that I'd worked with lots of people who had a very strong sense of self, who actually had gotten to a point in their life where they were able to conceptualise self in a very clear way. And as I'll mention um, when we talk about this, who conceptualise themselves not by their brain injury, but almost in spite of their brain injury. So, as I say, I felt um, really privileged to actually get some insight into that wisdom. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. More importantly, 
I hope, is we're going to talk about taking the learnings from this piece of research and applying it to working with people collaboratively, with people who've had brain injury, and using what came out as their internal sense of self to guide our therapy. So there's two issues. Let's understand what's happening in their experiences. And two, let's see if we can apply that to what we do with those people. Okay? I've probably said what's on about three slides now. Um, so the focus on the, of the presentation is the client's perspective on self. And what's important here is what we talk about this morning is derived from the people themselves. It's derived from 20 people with very severe brain injury. So it's their model. It's not my model. It's a model that in fact emerged from their wonderful um, interview transcripts. Um, what was also very clear was that this sense of self was supported by factors that facilitated a connection with society. And that was really important. That sense of being connected, having social connections, came out as a very strong um, underlying supporting factor. And these factors enabled, as I said, that, that unique social environment that that individual lived in. All of those social environments were different in many ways, just as ours are. Um, and that it was that social environment that when you look back over the stories these people told had helped this dynamic construction of self over time. And finally, that social environment supported their well-being. So that's what we're going to look at. And then, as I said, we're actually going to look at a framework using the model that arose from the, the research to guide our therapy. And we're going to spend some time talking about Emily, who's a young woman um, who um, subsequently I've worked with and we've applied the same model to see if, in fact, it works out with her. There are others, but Emily's, I think, a good one to start with. The literature tells us that self-concept is a multi-dimensional internal representation of the self. The important thing there is that we carry around this sense of ourselves with us wherever we go. And it's sometimes not congruent with how other people see us. You can probably think about times when you felt somebody has responded to you in a way that just doesn't fit how you see yourself. And it's quite disconcerting. That's important to actually remember because if you respond to someone you're working with in a way that's not congruent with their sense of self, you're likely to have a bit of a struggle in building up a good therapeutic relationship. So understanding how they see themselves is important. It is a dynamic knowledge structure. It's actually stored, we think, in semantic memory. So it's actually a memory component of how we see ourselves. It shapes our behaviour. I act in a way that's congruent with the way I see myself. Most of the time. Fatigue can get in the way. Substance consumption can get in the way. So there are lots of things. Sometimes emotion can get in the way. When you're angry, you may actually act in a way that is not consistent with your sense of self. It also affects the way we process information, particularly information about ourselves. 
It influences our choice of goals. Our goals, really simply, are an extension of the way we see ourselves. If you have a really poor conceptualisation of self or if you have a sense of having lost your identity, it's damn hard to develop goals. And that often is one of the reasons why people we work with have difficulties in developing goals with us. Because they haven't actually crystallised again that sense of self. It affects, as I said, how we relate to others. I love this, this concept that Barbara Shadden um, introduced in 2008 when she said, our sense of self is a unique product of our own specific walk through life. So it reflects not just the, the who we are, but the where we've been, the what we've experienced, the who we've loved, the who we haven't loved so much, the who we've fallen out of love with. It reflects that whole journey that you move through life with. That makes it a very, very powerful psychological construct. So the aims of the research, as I said, that I'm going to talk about was really to understand from the person's perspective how they saw themselves and then to actually see what the ways were in which they they developed and maintained a sense of social connection. One of the things that haunts me to this day is the fact that I've been working with people with brain injury for many, many years. That doesn't haunt me. That's a good part of my life. But what haunts me is one of the things that was really clear in my um, doctoral research was that social isolation was an incredible problem for people with severe brain injury, not only for them but often for their families. And I go to conferences now and I hear more often than I would like to admit the same outcomes. Social isolation is probably the most frequent outcome for people who've experienced severe brain injury. For some people who've experienced severe brain injury, the only people they interact with regularly are professionals. They're pretty good, there's no problems with that. Um, the people who care with, who, who are their carers, their attendant carers and disability support workers, and maybe a little bit of casual interaction with people in the community. But more than 55% of people, when you ask them, five years, 10 years, Robin Tate wonderfully asked a consecutive series of people she'd worked with back in the 80s, 23 years later, what their life was like and 63% of them said their biggest problem was not having social relationships. That seems really wrong to me and it seems like something we need to be changing and perhaps this is one of those ways of doing that if we understand the factors that help people stay connected. There's a, I could talk for ages about that, we'll, we'll move on. Um, so as I said, there were 16 men and four women. Not surprisingly, we have more males because brain injury we know has, doesn't occur randomly. It occurs much, it's much more likely to occur, to occur in young males. So we have um, four times as many males in this study as we have um, women. 
you can see that they all had very severe injuries. Um, for 12 of them, we had Glasgow Coma Scale scores and they ranged from three to five. And for the other eight, we had post-traumatic amnesia duration and that ranged from 28 to 150 days. So we're in that very severe end of the range, okay? Not as severe as, as some people, but as I say, all these people are living in the community with varying levels of support, I have to say. Their average age was 35 with a range of 21 to 54. So in that young adulthood range, 54 seems like young adulthood from where I'm standing. Um, time post-injury was on average 10 years, but with a range of five to 20 years. Five was the minimum. We, what I was really interested in understanding was that long-term sense of self. As I said, they were all living in the community. Six were living alone with support. Um, two were living with their spouses. Nine were living with family with, with additional support as well. And three were living in shared um, support at a comp. Okay, so if you're getting a sense of the people in, in relationship to those that you work with. Okay, none had been able to sustain competitive work even in a um, reduced environment or with reduced demands. One actually was working in a supported disability employment environment for about 20 hours a week. Three worked in a volunteer capacity and that was really important for them. Um, two were enrolled in part-time vocational training programs. Thirteen uh, attended group-based leisure activities in various, um, sometimes in disability support organisations, sometimes in, in regular community activities. And one person really had um, a significant sort of um, social phobic reaction to being around people, needed one-to-one -one support to interact either um, in very small group activities in the community or one-to-one -one with attendant carers. Okay, so this is a qualitative study, which means that you have the, um, really the, the joy in many ways of sitting down and talking with people in a very open, in-depth interview. And the approach that I take to qualitative research is what's called a constructivist grounded theory approach, which means you go in without too many preconceived ideas. You actually interview people in a way that doesn't direct them to say what you want them to say. A lot of research that we've done in the past has been filling in forms or questionnaires or scales, which means that people can only respond in the way you think has, if you like, driven the questionnaire or the development of the scale. So if somebody hasn't thought of a factor that might be really important in that person's life, it's not on the questionnaire for them to actually say, yes, I do this all the time. So qualitative research is, is a really nice way, and particularly constructivist grounded theory, it's a really nice way of getting that in-depth insight into the real experience of people. It's very time consuming. Interviews ranged from 90 minutes to four hours, I can say, over many cups of tea, coffee and chalky biscuits, sometimes not chalky biscuits, but plain biscuits, all good. So it's one of those situations where you actually get to be with the person and you explore things together. You say very little. 
Now, given the severity um, you have seen of this group of participants, communication was a challenge for a lot of them. So, in writing this up, it's been described in such a way that um, we used some scaffolding. So, it was it was a a tough challenge from an interview perspective, but can I say worth every second of it. Um, you audio tape and transcribe the interviews and they become your data. You code it line by line, comment by comment. And you do that in a, an iterative way and you compare and contrast people's experiences. Um, those of you who are doing um, qualitative research in research you might be doing know the joys and sometimes the um, not joys of this methodology. Uh, it challenges your brain. You often feel, oh, it's too big. Um, so three themes emerged from this data and they're not rocket science. The first two, who I am and how I feel about myself, actually described how these people conceptualise themselves. We'll break it down. But, but they talked about themselves in the sense of this is who I am and they also had an evaluative component there and this is how I feel about myself. Think about yourselves and probably that's exactly how you think about yourself. These are the things that I know about myself and some of them I feel good about, some of them I don't. Okay? And the other factor that emerged was the staying, the other theme that emerged was staying connected. So we're going to dig into both of these, the conceptualising self and the support staying connected themes. Conceptualising self, as I said, had two components. These knowledge components, who I am, and that was the first thing that continuously emerged across the data. And the second one was the evaluative components, how I feel about myself, okay? Straightforward, two very simple ways to think about it. I have to say what amazed me that, that in fact, um, there's a lot of models of identity and self-concept out there. But it was interesting that, that these themes have come through almost all of those models. So at some level, perhaps we just needed to ask people rather than do some of the other things we've been doing since Aristotle was actually interested in, in, in identity. Within the knowledge components, there were some very clear indicators of attributes. So the first part of our knowledge components are the attributes we see in ourselves. And in the interviews, they were clearly identifiable because they were describing statements. They described from the person's perspective who they were, what their attributes were. So an example here is, oh, I, I fit in really easily with others. Other attributes were, I'm impatient, I'm kind, I'm handsome. I'm cheeky, I've got a great sense of humour. So they were really straightforward personal attributes. Nobody described themselves by brain injury. Remember, we're long term. Nobody started the conversation when I said, tell me about yourself. Nobody said, well, I've had a brain injury or I am a brain injury or I'm brain injured. They talked about who they were. They talked about their actual personal characteristics. And that was, for me, you know, I went in thinking that brain injury was going to be front and foremost. 
But by this point in these people's journey through life, they were who they were. And that was really important. The second thing that was really evident in this knowledge component of self were goals. Five to 10 years post, five to 20 years post, I should say, with an average of 10 years, people had striving statements riddled throughout their interview transcripts, what I want to do. And those striving statements, so we had these descriptions and we had these striving statements, those striving statements tended to be categorised into four categories. A little bit loosely, there was a physical category and a material category. An example of a physical um, category was even this many years post, things like, I want to increase movement in my arm. This is where you started to get a flavour of the brain injury. This is where, if you like, this um, having um, some limitations on functioning became quite clear. So for some people, 20 years post, there was still a desire to change their physical functioning. Of course there was. All of us go through life with, I wish I was fitter. You know, I wish I was less heavy. Whatever it happens to be, we have physical goals. Not surprisingly, every one of these people had physical goals. There were also um, social relational goals and activity goals. I think if we actually did this with you, if you fill in this little model when we finish it for yourself in your own time, you'll actually get a nice guidepost for you, for where you're going and what you'd like to do. Um, so an example of an activity um, quote out of the data was, I want to be able to go back to work. How many times have we all heard that? This doing some meaningful occupation. I'm really well educated by OTs now. The importance of that meaningful occupation in your life. And I'll give you an example of the other categories in a moment. So this was, if you like, the who I am component. Really simple, describing statements and striving statements. It actually, if you like, um, simmered down to being these two important elements, quite complex within them. And then within the data emerged this, this evaluative component of self. And the first component here was a description of achieving, of achievements. They were the achieving statements and they were almost, if you like, the um, stock taking of the outcomes of goals. If you think about that, you know, today's goals become yesterday, tomorrow's outcomes or today's outcomes reflect yesterday's goals. So there's a relationship here. That you can actually see the journey to the point by looking at the outcomes and by listening for achieving statements. And those achieving statements did reflect the same categories. For example, in the material category, one young man was particularly happy to say, I live in my own unit. I own this unit. This is mine. This is my home and it's mine. And that was an incredibly important theme that came through for pretty much all of the participants, the participants who had managed to either continue to live in their own home, to, develop, to actually find a home that they really considered their own. Home is 
particularly important. We also saw those social, relational and activity achievements or outcomes being described. And here we have somebody saying, I've made a lot of friends where I volunteer. This relationship between social relationships and activity was quite strong in the data. So we actually have, we, we encounter opportunities to form social relationships if we're active. If you're not active in the community, then the social relationships often become really vulnerable and problematic. So there's, there's two reasons, if you like, um, for having meaningful occupation. It builds a sense of self, it gives you goals, but it also creates that social connection with other people in your social environment. So pretty simple. Then when you have a look at this, this evaluative stuff, it was truly an evaluate, it was truly the existence of evaluative statements. Statements like, I'm not a nice person to be around when I'm miserable. Good indications of insight, sometimes not. But the attitude statements were really the individual self-reflection on how they saw themselves. Um, there were, and they ranged from positive, really positive, I'll say up this end, to really negative, like I, to the negative point where I'm not really worth much. So we had a full range of those attitudes that were evident in the data. Um, giving you some good insight into the emotional state of the people that, that of the person as well. Yeah, there was one person who had a very clear, um, who was actually in the caseness range or who had um, clinical depression, who we also um, set up some intervention, some therapy for. Only one who clearly was. What was interesting, we looked at both depression, looking at the DAS. We also looked at quality of life. And the average quality of life from memory was about 6.7 out of 10 just using a subjective quality of life rating. Um, most people were above five, which is probably what most of us would be. It's interesting, our sense of quality of life is very, very personal. It's in our own context. And this one person also had, as you would predict, a really low rating of quality of life. So there seemed to be, um, as you would expect, depression, means you come down pretty negatively on yourself. So one's self-attitude often reflects emotional, poor emotional mood state, um, which is a good indicator for that. If you're listening to somebody and having an interview with them when you first start working with them to get a sense of who they are, then that self-evaluation is one of the best indicators into emotional well-being. So yeah, really um, important question. So, what also became obvious, and, and, and mostly through uh, one of the participants, Helen, was that this is cyclical. So people continuously move through the cycle. They go from their life adds to their experience of who they are, their knowledge components of themselves. It can actually reduce those knowledge components. It can take away some things or it can add to them. And those experiences feed into this evaluative component of self and then go back in a loop to the who I am. Let me give you an example here of Helen, who is discussed in this paper. Helen 
um, with somebody who um, lived in the community in a unit was supported um, by attendant care, by attendant carers um, pretty much throughout the week. She had um, a companion animal at home. She was reliant on a wheelchair for mobility. Uh, and she was talking about, in fact, she showed me a wonderful CD holder that she'd made. So it was one of the achievements or one of her outcomes when we were just talking about things. And that happened in the interview, in the, in the transcript. And then she actually talked about how good, so her self-attitude, how good she felt about herself for being somebody who could make things. It's not unusual. We all do this. I wish I could make a CD holder as good as the one that Helen had made. So it actually, this achievement had fed into her self-attitude. But then she described herself later on in the interview, not necessarily connected, but certainly connected from a, um, a semantic perspective, a meaning perspective. She described herself as being a craft person. So her achievement, her self-evaluation of what she had done, actually built into her sense of self-attributes. So I'm a craft person. And given that she had discovered she was a craft person, she then talked about, I'd really like to go to TAFE and actually maybe learn more about furniture making or making things. So you could see her cycle, just literally from one activity starting to build, her, build further on her sense of self. Just as Helen was able to build a sense of self through her experiences, there were times when negative experiences reduced a person's, if you like, sense of having a positive attribute. So those times when you think you can do something and you don't quite achieve it can actually stay with you as a negative attitude to self. So it works both ways. So that was those first two things. Really simple, really straightforward. The second one that we'll look at now briefly is staying connected. What were the factors that emerged in these people's stories that had kept them connected with society? Why was it for these people, and some of them were truly isolated, but what were the themes that emerged in their stories that told us these were potential factors to work upon so that we could maintain connections? So we've got self in the middle, no longer broken down into its bit, bits and we've got social connection and we've got six factors that jumped out of this, of this data. Now some of you may have heard me talk about this before because there's one little bit in here that everybody probably knows is my favourite. I'll tell you when I get there. Um, so the first, the first thing that emerged was family. Family in all its guises. Mums, dads, brothers, sisters, cousins, uncles, aunts, wives, Family was really important. Things like visits with my brother and some of my brother's friends. So family became another potential for connecting to other people. Um, family the way they are, they're just here. And for some people, family was the only social connection. So on average 10 years later, five to 10 years, there were a, a significant sense that family was the only thing that kept me connected with the world. So I have, I have no friends anymore, only my family. 
Friends, no, only wife and family, was a comment that I heard many, many times. So this sense of isolation being represented in the data, but that underpins the importance of family, being sometimes the, the, you know, the life raft that's there, but also being an avenue that we can work through to expand social connection. The next one was friends, and it was interesting. There was clear indications of friends having been kept since before the injury. Not that many. Out of the 20, I think I can remember three who, who explicitly talked about having maintained friendships that had existed before their injury. So it's a small percentage, but it is there. Um, friends that they had met during their rehabilitation process. Um, people that they'd really gelled with, that they felt really positive about. And sometimes a sense of having lost those friends because it was hard to maintain connection. And there was also um, a clear um, indication that you could stay connected with friends through different media. So you might actually see them person to person, but you could connect with them via the phone and texting, or you can connect with them um, electronic, electronically by email or Facebook. So there were different media for people to actually maintain their friendships. And that I think is another important thing that we know now we can explore as we're helping a person return to the community so that we give them other avenues of connection. Um, the next uh, factor that arose was carers. Remembering that these people all had very severe brain injuries, pretty much all of them were working with attendant carer support workers and had really an, a really important message and that was that those carers were really important in their lives. For many of them, they had had, um, unusually, a consistency of one or two carers, sometimes with changes around that. And where there was a consistency, there was clearly a relationship that had been built up. And it was a relationship beyond this is a professional in those. It was, it was almost like a carer friendship. They often, they didn't, they talked about carers as carers. The word carer was actually used, but they said things like, I look forward to the weekends because I go out with carers. Having carers come over is really good. I remember one person in particular who had had a birthday party and the picture of the people at the party was on the mantelpiece and he said, this is my birthday party. And I said, so who's there? And we were looking at them and there was a sort of bittersweet element to this because probably of the 11 or so, 10 people that were in the photograph, eight of them were carers. But it was still a really important social connection for that person and was probably the only sure social connection that he'd actually developed over time. Um, the importance of getting along with carers and the fact that carers also became somebody who could actually help you be active in the community and do activities. Pets or companion animals emerged as a really important factor for quite a few participants. And um, 
no surprises there really. That in fact having, I, I love this quote, I think it's this one, I'm never lonely because I have Bess. Bess was the dog. I've changed the dog's name as well as the people's names. <laughs> I made the mistake of not doing that once and people knew then who the person was because they recognised the dog's name. So um, we have um, the importance of that, that relationship. Um, Nugget, I can also attest to the fact that it was very entertaining and did make me laugh because Nugget continuously sat on the small digital recorder. Um, <laughs> I stopped laughing after a while. The other important thing was the connection that pets bring. The connection that, it, that it, this you know, quote about, there's a lady down the street who has a terrier too. If you actually have a dog and there's other people who have a dog, you have this immediate connecting device. That for somebody who might have difficulties interacting or communicating with people, having a dog that um, is the first step forward in terms of topic generation can be really useful. Uh, it also opened up activities like dog obedience activities where you could meet new people. So companion animals are important for a group of people in, this, in, this, um, in, in these people that we, we work with. The next one, this is the one that I like a lot, is social snacks. Social snacks emerged in the, in the data. And social snacks, it's not my term, but I love the term. I wish I had have come up with it. Social snacks are tangible items or evidence of social connection. So they're things like photos, certificates, a card from somebody, a postcard from somebody. They're those tangible mementos we have that somebody cares about us. If you've ever had to travel away from home alone and be away for a long time, you will know how important it is to have some tangible mementos of the people that you love. For this group of people who have reduced social connection and have severely impaired memory, having social snacks, having these things around the room, having a certificate from completing a, a group community program, having things that said, you know, people, I've been around people was really important. And it's interesting, the term social snack was developed by Gardner and her colleagues, and their work is in the ostracism literature, in, in looking at how do people cope with being ostracised, both if you're from a different culture and you move cultures and you go somewhere else, what are the things that keep you going? And she identified that people who tended to be culturally isolated or ostracised, these symbolic social behaviours were really important. Um, it's a bit like in Castaway. Was it Castaway? Where he has the Wilson? So Wilson is actually, was a social snack. I find that film very disconcerting because of Wilson. <laughs> but, um, but he was a, a, a good example of, the, the volleyball was a good example of actually how we need reminders of the fact that we have people around us that care about us. So they're all the sorts of things you can use. And they're particularly important, as I say, when you have a memory deficit and you may not remember that you actually won a prize or that you completed a course or that you actually did know people who, who treated you as if you were somebody 
who was really important and not just a patient and not just somebody with a, um, with a difficulty. So it's something easy we can do. I think it probably does and in fact this research was carried out um, before there was a lot of social media where in fact those tangent the thing with the social media issue is making sure that it's accessible so some of these people would have in their homes computers but actually often didn't think about putting them on unless it was triggered because of that executive dysfunction that it's not good enough just to have a computer there or an iPad there, somebody has to support you to be able to get to that point where you can use it effectively. And I'm, you know, I'm talking to, the, to people who know that here. But certainly I think it does. And also even getting a text from somebody makes a difference, those sorts of things. Um, you know, the Instagram, Instagram? Yeah, getting a photograph of, <laughs> see, you can see I'm not all that good at these things. <laughs> I learn a lot from the people I work with though, I'll tell you. Um, so I, I like that the, they actually shield you from the stings of isolation or rejection. Um, in the sense if somebody is um, not particularly pleasant to you when you go home and you actually are reminded of the fact there are people in your life who care about you, it really helps get over that. Okay, so that's where we're at so far. And the final um, factor that came through was the self-narrative itself the self-narrative, and it came through in two ways. It came through as an activity, and it, 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 um, so I have my own website so that I can tell people my story, the importance of telling my story. You know, it's really good to be able to tell your story. But also, I like people to know who I am. We're all different. The theme that we're all different came out quite a lot. The, this sense of saying to the world, Look, I've had a brain injury, but I'm me and we're all different. You can't put people together just because they've had a brain injury. We're all different. This uniqueness is really important in the world. Um, one person described it beautifully. You know, I'm not a typical brain injury. And then he said, and I don't know anybody who is. <laughs> and I would agree. Um, so that was really important and within the self-narrative um, we know from there's, there's a lo some lovely work about the self-narrative that it's shaped continuously through the ordinary and exceptional experiences of life. It allows us to get on with life after disruption. It takes into account the changes associated with disruptive events. It facilitates the meaning making process. It supports goal setting for all of us. Um, it facilitates connection as a unique individual and it, it is developed and validated through social interactions with others. Um, Bloomer was really good about describing the fact that you develop your sense of self through your social interactions. That's how we construct self. It's through that interaction with the world and developing a story that goes with that, the story we can tell about ourselves. And not surprisingly, and this reflects lots of other research that um, has been done in this area, there were multiple self-narratives that were evident in this um, large um, corpus of, of interviews. The first one, and we've all met these, this self-narrative many times in many different guises, the framing the situation and its consequences as a positive event. 
So one of the participants said, I'm glad I had my accident because it's made me into a better person. Verbatim um, quote, all my changes have been really positive. So this is this positive reframing self-narrative. And in this self-narrative, the injury takes on a productive role with the survivor's life story giving rise to a better person who is motivated to move forward in life. What's interesting with this self-narrative was the goals that people in this um, group who expressed this tended to be altruistic types of goals. This desire, I want to help others. I could put together a program to be used by teenagers about making the right choice about drinking. So the self-narrative it, it, itself gave insight into what the, the person's goals were. So several of the people with this positive reframing had this desire to actually prevent other people from having the really negative experiences that they felt they'd had. And in fact, who went on to do this? To tell their stories at you know, secondary schools, to tell their stories to sporting clubs, and to, to talk about how their life had actually changed. And it gave them not only a sense of self in a way, but also um, activities to continue to feed that sense of self. Yes. Uh, it hasn't featured up till now. So I'm just wondering, is that, are you saying that that's actually just for some people or is that what's been common across the whole project? No, it was, it's really one of the narratives that arose, but it was quite, and again, if you think about how long-term we are, not surprisingly, it was actually quite common within the transcript that there was a sense of, I want to give back. And for those people, it was often the motivation to continue on. Um, I think probably the other side, well, we'll see, there's, there's some other self-narratives that you'll recognise. And I think with, with self-narrative, sometimes people actually cycle into different aspects of that. So you can have a really tough time and actually be thrown into a different um, story about self for a little while. So it may well be, although it clearly wasn't there in everybody, there were some people who, I have to say, were, um, in a sense, well, I'll show you the other narratives and we can talk about this, but I think that's a really nice point that we can actually come back to perhaps in discussion too. The fact that for many of these people, they weren't given the opportunity to give back. That it, it, it was a sense that, uh, you know, I'm just sitting here with not being able to, to do something positive with this. The next thing that came out was the people who focus on the present, the living in the here and now. These themes, these first two themes were also evident in Noshi's work that was published in the 90s, this sort of positive reframing and then, well, I've got to just live in the here and now because God knows what's going to happen. This thing happened to me out of the blue, wasn't expecting it and now I'm just going to actually deal with what I can expect, which is the here and now. So these were things like trying to take things day by day, I only live day by day. This theme of living in the present rather than thinking too much about the future. So for these people, the, sen the sense is made of the injury by including the characteristic of uncertainty. 
They talked a lot about not knowing what might be there as part of the future in their life story. You can never be sure what's going to happen. So grasp the moment. Do something in the moment, but don't think it's always assured. So their goals were much more immediate. They were less certain and less far-reaching. In fact, they were often to do with day-to-day -day functioning. Pay my own bills. Be able to look after my own finances. Keep having the kids over on Tuesdays. I don't want to change that and get out of the house more, bowling, cricket, maybe. So there was an immediacy to these goals rather than seeing oneself as making a difference to the world which is absolutely fine. It helps give you some insight into goal setting for those people. Um, then there was the third one, which was the feeling fortunate by comparison with poorer alternative outcomes. And those feeling fortunate by comparison was often the comparison to um, people that were in rehab with them. I'm so much better than all the other people that were in rehab with me or at Talbot when I was at Talbot or at Epworth when I was at... I'm really lucky. So for, that, that sense of being fortunate, of being positive about it was only in comparison to somebody else or maybe in comparison to death. So I'm really lucky because I could have been dead. So this sense that um, it's a, I've got I've to recognise that, that I'm fortunate in this situation. There are a lot of people who are, who are much worse off than I am, as you can see by that quote. And for these people, it's actually, their life story really could be titled, I'm lucky. It could be worse. So it's not just I'm really glad the injury, the, the first people were saying, I'm glad the injury happened to me because I'm a better person. This person's still in that phase of saying, gee, I'm lucky. I'm really lucky because I get a second chance. So it, it, it's a, a positive conceptualisation in some ways. Um, and what was really important for these people was grasping that lucky opportunity. So sometimes it was, you know, I was a bit of a layabout and didn't do anything and now I'm really going to take this opportunity. I'd really like to be able to work, I'd really like to be able to find somebody I love and marry them and have a life that um, that is worthy of this second chance. And the final narrative that was present was, was the people who saw themselves as being a burden. That is, their life story was around, I'm just a burden on all those who love me. And it was, if you like, um, a negative self-narrative. It's too much on my wife to look after me. I wish I could do more to help this sense of not being able to truly contribute. Now, you know, all of these self-narratives came out, came, were evident from the interviews with people who all had very similar levels of disability and severity of injury. So it didn't reflect simply the severity of the injury. But the sense of loss, um, particularly um, if, you were, if they, were, they were unable to continue to be, say, the breadwinner or to continue to be able to provide for family. So for these people, it's, it's, the injury was framed as causing dependence and, and precipitating unreasonable, unreasonable burden. And consequently, their goals implied that consideration. Um, one man said, to move to a place where someone could take care of me because it's too much for my wife. 
to do that. So this sense of a goal is to actually stop being a burden to get away. And in talking with people around this, that's not a continuous self-narrative, but it's often underpins how that person is feeling. So there's always this sense of, gee, it's really tough having to care about me. Okay, so there, if you like, that's the six factors that were there across the narrative, across the data, I should say, um, around the factors that help people keep connection. So there are some implications about that and most of these things we actually take care of during rehabilitation and it's a reminder that we need to support family ties and we need to support family functioning and we need to make sure that family are a really important part of the work that we do. Because if you're not working with families, you're actually making your job quite a bit harder um, and you're also not engaging in a support mechanism that can really hold the person in good stead over long term. Now that doesn't mean, and I've spent a lot of my life not working with the gorgeous, wonderful families that we'd like to work with. Families, you know, one of the things about brain injury, it doesn't say, look, just because you've got a dysfunctional family, I'm not going to give you a brain injury. It doesn't walk around thinking you've had enough in your life. In fact, I think the opposite. Sometimes I think that there are families where tragedy seems to stalk them. It doesn't matter how many horrendous things have happened to you, another one could still happen. So you will work with families that would be described as being dysfunctional families. And they're a real challenge, but they're still families. And they're still a really important part of rehabilitation. And just as the fabulous family can support the person you're working with, working with the family that's a bit more challenging can also make a difference. So it is, you know, another tick to that, the importance of, of, of a holistic approach in rehabilitation across the continuum, across the, the post-injury continuum, not just for a couple of sessions or an information session here and there. I don't think we work enough with um, friends and I think we need to work more to develop friendships, to help people develop friendships and to maintain um, friendships that existed prior to injury or developed through rehabilitation. And I know there's, we have people um, at La Trobe working on that area and there are people um, at University of Sydney. So it's an area that people are starting to recognise really requires direct, require, requires us to directly address it. Um, working with carers, supporting carers to be um, able to give the best possible support to recognise that it's a really tough gig being um, a support worker. Uh, in fact, it's probably an unrecognised challenge because, you know, certainly isn't remunerated like, uh, it's a bit like, I think, teachers, childcare workers, support workers, the people we desperately need to be excellent and fabulous are those who get paid less. Doesn't quite work in my world, but... It does seem to happen that way. So working with the people um, who are going to be support workers for the, the individuals we work with is really important. Um, I think we need to acknowledge companions, pet, <coughs> companion pets. 
um, as being an important part of somebody's life um, and not pretend they're not there or not recognise how important they can be. I also think we need to make sure we're giving people social snacks associated with the work we do with them. Make sure that when you have an achievement, you mark that achievement, that you take a photo of a group or that you, you, know, you, you send it through, that you actually give certificates of achievements. When there's a real achievement, I'm not talking about being patronising around this. It's, it's the reality that this is an important part of all of our lives. And it's also important that we explore and develop the self-narrative as we work with somebody. It's almost respect to that person to actually have insight into how they see themselves. I don't know how we work with people unless we have a good internal conceptualisation of how they see themselves. Not how we see them, but how they see themselves. So, we're going to um, quickly have a look at um, an example of somebody, um, of Emily that is using this model that's one of the things that I've found and I use it as a, as a sort of you know, poster thing that you can fill stuff in, you can scribble all over, is that one of the things that people who I work with really like about this model is that it comes from people who've had that experience. I don't say this is the model that was developed by these researchers, this is a model that actually is grounded in the experience of people who've had a brain injury. And it kind of gives it validity and credibility for the people. It, we've already done this. Um, it's simple. It talks about cycles and cycles within cycles. Um, it puts goals and outcomes in the context of the self and it provides a concrete means of tracking therapeutic endeavours. So we fill it in and we look at it again. We see if there are any new attributes to add to how the person sees themselves. Has the intervention, whatever it happens to be that we've just worked on for the last 12 sessions or six sessions, has it made a difference? Can we add something new into this sense of who you, who, of who you are? So, in a way, this is a, a capturing what we've already talked about. You must understand the knowledge components of the per person that you're working with. When you think about anybody you're working with today, you really should be able to describe the person, who they are. Are they funny? Do they have a great sense of humour? Think about the attributes that go with that person. You don't and you never want to describe them via their spasticity. It's not an attribute. It's actually a functional problem that they're dealing with. But think about who that person is, knowing the quirky nature of the person. So you do need to be able to describe both the statements they have internally to describe themselves and to have a sense of their striving statements. What are their goals? And they can fit into these areas. If you do that, then you can make sure that the goals you develop are self-relevant goals. They should be self-centric. That is, for them, not you. <laughs> That's important. Being able to actually help develop that sense of self is part of, I think, what 
good therapeutic intervention does. Then you also need to know about the appraising and the achieving statements. So you highlight and you record outcomes as self-achievements. You'll have some social snacks in there. And you'll encourage regular self-appraisal. Given that we know that one of the things that happens when you have an acceleration, deceleration injury to the brain is that you frequently can experience difficulties with self-awareness or self-evaluation. If that becomes part of the cycle, every time you build on a goal, then that will actually help therapeutically to make a difference in that ability to self-appraise. And it's not a nice pretend self-appraisal, it's an accurate self-appraisal that you, you participate in with the person. Okay, same things. You need to connect those outcomes directly to the goals that the person has. So you do, you work in cycles and this is what we, we talk about, what I talk about with the people that we work with in research. I'll let you into a secret. Research is my way of being able to deliver intervention for nothing, but don't tell anybody. Um, being able to actually say, let's you know, test some intervention principles and theories and apply them in, in a research framework means we, give, we bring rigour and we develop evidence base that can then be used elsewhere. Um, so you work together in these cycles of make sure you have a sense of how this person describes themselves, what they're striving for, what they've achieved and, what, and how they see themselves in that achievement. Now, we're going to talk about Emily briefly and then we'll stop and discuss and have toilet break, etc. Everybody happy with that? Okay. So Emily is a nice example. Enemy, Emily's um, 28 years old. She had 14 years of education at the time of her, of her injury. She's beautiful. Um, she's, she's got a winning smile. She's um, a lot of, she's an, she, she brings a sense of uh, almost clarity to a, to a room, in just her presence in many ways. She will see that she has some, some challenging functional um, difficulties that she's aware of herself. She was a, an admin person at the time of her injury. Uh, her motor vehicle crash happened five years ago. She had a PTA of 63 days. She lives at home with her parents. She has paid support through the TAC. And just to give you some scores on the chart, she doesn't have difficulties with physical independence or mobility. She certainly has difficulties with cognitive independence and we'll see why in a moment. And she's not able to um, participate in the competitive work environment. She's actually has difficulties, uh, when we first started to work with her, had difficulties in really um, pursuing meaningful activity at all without support. And she has low social integration. On the chart, 100 is the normative score. Okay, just to give you an idea, it's a bit like, you know, we're all supposed to be at 100%. And you can see where Emily would be in comparison. Um, she has some self-awareness difficulties. She actually has significant executive function problems. Um, and they go across pretty much all executive function 
from holding on to things to review them, so from um, being able to allocate appropriate attentional resources to activities when she's doing them. She has significant memory problems. In fact, her ability to hold on to information for more than a couple of minutes without some support is really impaired. So she needs um, some compensatory strategies from a memory perspective. And she has very, she has poor social communication. I put these scores up here. For those of you who don't know, LCQ stands for the Latrobe Communication Questionnaire. You can get it for nothing, so it's not an ad. You can email me if you want the LCQ. But what's interesting, there's a self-report version and a um, close other report version that can be filled in either by a clinician who knows the person well or by a family member. And um, Emily, as you can see by the um, comparison with the normative data, she scored herself at 44. The higher the score, the more problems you have. And you can see that Emily thinks she has less problems than the normative group, than people about her own age. So she's not aware of her social communication difficulties. Um, her mum, gives her a score of 102, the, the highest the score can go is 120. So her mum sees her as having lots of social communication problems, um, three standard more than three standard deviations above the mean for close others. So we've got this discrepancy here, this incongruence. Emily thinks her communication is fine and her mum is really concerned about the fact that she doesn't, isn't able to interact. Um, from a communication perspective. Um, at the time we started to work with Emily, her overall psychological distress, so the total score on the DAS was, 70, was equivalent to the 73rd percentile for Australian normative data. So she's got a lot of psychological distress going on there at the time we started. So we actually did this. We started with attributes, that is developed, we developed an understanding of, of her personal characteristics and this is Emily's perspective on herself. She's a family person, important to know. She really appreciates family. She likes dancing in the gym, she likes to be active, also really important to know. I don't like bad attitudes and being against people you care about. She has a great deal of difficulty with anything that might represent conflict or anything that might represent disagreement. She doesn't like to be in tense situations. She has a sense that people are, are, are judging her in the community when she goes out, so she'd prefer not to go out. So that's a really important part of how you think about working with Emily. Because Emily, from having been with, her, with Emily in coffee shops, at times she thinks people are focused on her when they are and when they aren't. So she finds it difficult to actually recognise when somebody might be looking straight past her and somebody might be actually looking at her. And purple is her favourite colour, hence why her model is in the purples. Um, Really simple, that's how, how Emily describes herself. Really important information there from our perspective that family are going to be an important part of working with her, that in fact she is an active person, she likes dancing, we, or she also, we all see her goals actually. So then we sit down and we develop her self-relevant goals. 
she developed the goals entirely really with time, with support, um, in the interaction, I would like to change, I would like to get a job, a full-time job like and do things. Nothing is coming to mind. Journalism, no, I think I got out of journalism. She actually had done a journal journalism degree um, before her, her accident and before her, the motor vehicle crash. And it's interesting that her, her memory is, is really stressed in many ways because she doesn't really remember that she's done that, but she's learnt again that she did journalism. But she still has that sort of draw to that as a profession. It's, it's interesting. So she would like in the long term to work. I would like to get back into driving. She hasn't been able to um, get her licence reinstated. I would like to go overseas. Um, I would like to get into singing, rhythm and blues singing. So she'd like to start singing. Um, I'd like to be more straightforward when having a discussion with somebody that's close to me. And if what I say is harsh or inappropriate, I'd like to present it with more knowledge, more knowledge along that line. So she's talking a lot about even though she doesn't think she has communication difficulties, she does recognise she perhaps have, has difficulty getting her message across. She'd like to be able to present things in a more knowledgeable way. I'd like to be able to start talking to people. I only really do that if something, if something is wrong and if it's visible, like the toaster is broken. She's describing, she has such difficulty initiating. And... You know, we all know, she, you know, it's sitting there thinking, I would like to talk to these people, but I have no idea. But if you go to her house, you know, and the toaster is broken, that's the first thing you'll hear. The toaster's broken and whatever it is. So they're, they're, they're that being, the, the idea that it, her idea generation is really impoverished, but it really does come out and she perceives how it comes out. But all she does is say the concrete which is not necessarily, and she recognises, a great way of developing social interaction. And the toaster isn't always there, so if there's no broken toaster, there may not be anything to say from her perspective. And finally, I'd like to be better on the phone. Um, I, I'm so blind, it's not that I can't read, she says. Uh, uh, I hand the phone to mum instead of finding out more. I would like to learn to ask questions, for example, who are you, what do you want? Um, they, she's, she actually got good at doing who are you, what do you want, which often made people feel a little uncomfortable on the other end of the phone. But it was clearly a sense that I want to be able to say something. She, it's interesting, the phone rings and almost reflexively Emily picks it up and then freezes and gives it to her mum without saying anything. So that, that reflexive procedural thing, if there's a ringing phone, mobile phone or the phone at home, she's the first to get it and then freezes because she can't actually um, initiate or think about what she could say. So pretty, um, we thought, interesting goals, which we saw together, um, Emily and I, as being part of that social relational activity end of the spectrum. She doesn't have physical, and the material in the sense of being able to get a job, but that was very much for her in the activity domain. So she's down that social relational activity end of her goals. And um, 
what we did was we highlighted three goals to work on in, in 12 sessions, okay? To actually put them all together because we thought that actually singing might be a way of also meeting people that she could start to interact more knowledgeably with, that she could think about some topic generation with, but that also there would be an activity that she could do that she really enjoyed. Um, and so all three of them could actually be worked upon in that social environment, which might have some ongoing impact for her. This is just, you know, 101 therapy in a way. But we also then actually, she did achieve becoming a member of the singing group in her community. And you'd be amazed how many singing groups actually are available for people to participate in. Lots of people start and don't continue is one of the things that people in these groups often say um, when you talk to them about um, supporting somebody to become a member of the group. She participated in, in public performances on three occasions and they were great for photos for snacking on because there were wonderful photos taken by the group that were real media photos that she could actually have to a reminder of the fact that she'd successfully participated. She was comfortable initiating co conversation with fellow singers in the group. Now we actually worked on this, confident I should say, worked on this specifically. We developed a set of topics that she was comfortable with. We practiced them, we videoed them, we reviewed them, we did them again, we did them in, with um, her support worker, with her clinician, with her mum, and she did them when she was at the singing group and did really well and said, yeah, my confidence, and we rate confidence at the beginning and at the end, and had her confidence had doubled. It was still not great, but six out of 10 was better than three out of 10. She felt like she developed one friend. We know that our literature says you only need one friend. One friend or one opportunity to develop a strong Thai support can get you through life. Sometimes a lot of friends doesn't necessarily help. But, you know, literature says one person when you go to an event or go to something that you can rely upon can be really important. And that seemed to be really important for Emily in the singing group. That one budding relationship kept her going there. Um, she had, she, as I said, we got the, the picking the phone up and saying, who is it? <coughs> that can be shaped and could continue to be shaped. But um, the fact that she was able to say something did help her sense of, of achievement. And also it came out in, in measures. She doesn't see herself still as having real communication problems, but we addressed how she dealt with difficult communication interactions and that changed. She was able to practice the way to, in, to cope when people didn't have any idea what she was talking about or when she didn't have any idea what she wanted to talk about. So we worked on it from a coping perspective and that did make a difference to her functional communication and her mum um, saw that's getting close to the normative range, a score of 54 on the LCQ and three months later when we went back to Emily to see how she was going, so we had 12 weeks, three months break, and then start a new cycle um, to address a new goal. Once you've got some, once we have some consolidation, we see the see her at 
immediately after one month and then three months and then start um, another cycle. And you can see that her DAS total score is now um, around the 46th percentile at the end of therapy and at the 50th percentile, or somewhere around that. Um, so we have really good outcomes that Emily was really proud of. They were really significant achievements in a small amount of time, you know, in 12 sessions. That's not a lot. One of the things that was really is really important about Emily, she was so primed because she hadn't had therapy for quite a long time. She'd had a lot and she's a really good example of how, you know, it's not always continuous therapy that makes a difference, that, that bursts and doses of therapy are really important as we go along and I've been on that one for ages. So this is what she says herself, I'm, I'm more confident if I don't understand something now, I'll ask questions to make sure I understand it. That was a really big achievement and something that she had every reason to be particularly proud of and to evaluate herself as a, somebody who could actively say, look, I'm not sure what you're getting at. Can you help me? Can you give me more information? She saw herself as being much more proactive than she ever had been. Um, she talked about her voice getting stronger and the fact that she had a really good emotional response to singing and that was really important. Great achievement and I'm thinking about helping with the primary, she talks about the name of the primary school here, musical, because the primary school that she went to, she's still back living with mum and dad, the primary school has a musical every two years and she was thinking that maybe she'd volunteer to do that. So we do get that potential activity loop. Now all of this is supported. It's not um, in a sense by her mum, by her support worker. There was one worker in particular who was excellent and work, had been working with Emily pretty much since she had gone home. And also making sure we found out about her unique social context. The fact that she was close to her own primary school. Were there opportunities there? Um, we didn't find a rhythm and blues singing group, but we found a group that did lots of different sorts of singing and she was happy with that. So there's a lot of work that happens within that. And as I said, so we know that I, I mean, Emily's mum was really important in the videos that I've taken off because I didn't trust them working. You would see that. Um, she did develop one friend. And if you support the interaction around developing friends, you can do that. We had her wonderful carer. We also didn't have any pets in this environment. We had artwork, I have to say, that was an important part of how um, Emily saw herself. And we did take lots of photos of things and recorded how things went for Emily because of her memory problem. She really needed to be able to review what she had done. And it's so easy now with being able to take photos to do that. And um, her self-narrative was really, um, had, had that um, shade of, to start with, a very much feeling like she was going to just be with her mum and at home. And it started to develop with, oh, maybe I can do something for, for other people now and actually help out with the school musical. So there's a, there's a change in her self-narrative. Okay, so it is a cyclical process. 
I think you can work together really simply. It can be the person's model. Emily has her model for how she's actually moving forward. That's it. So. <laughs> You probably don't get your photo taken if you don't clap. <laughs> Do you want to have a bit of a stretch? And it would be really nice just to talk about your responses and feelings around this. This is the best part about these. Yeah. So if you can stay, please do so. Um, and I was just, I forgot to say when I started that I think this is such a lovely topic because it's actually Brain Injury Awareness Week this week. Um, there's lots of different events going on and, and I think this is a, a really big focus for us to bring into those events and, and something that can really help us make a practical difference to people. Um, if anyone happens to have some free time on Thursday lunchtime, um, Epworth is doing it just a, having a couple of people talking about their experiences and things that they'd like to learn and also Libby Calloway's talking as well. So, um, you know, pop into the Richmond Auditorium at 12 o'clock. You might even snare a little piece of lunch. Won't go very far, but if you get it quick, you might be okay. Um, so, yeah, please feel free to do that as well. So, have a quick stretch. If you quickly need to go to the toilet, do that. But I think then we'll... Two minutes, and then we'll start some discussion. You're a good boss. So oh. We're going to announce the scholarship that's, you know, that it's coming. Oh, right. we can do that. I think that. we should do that. Yes, yes. I think we should if say we can, that yeah. it will be coming out. Okay. It's going to be the we've got all of, we've got the timeline sorted out. We've done all of that. So we and, and applications will close yeah. at the and end. And I looked at the thing Tom sent. Great. Just only make sure how we make sure that the student. It says people who are working actively in API rehab. How do we? bring the students that I might think it does say students too. Has it? Oh okay. I read it very late last night. Yeah, but the way that well it did before I did on last week when I it did. when we looked yeah, at I know, it. Yeah. But there was a revision with the Summer Foundation sort of candidate okay. that went out last night and I read yeah. very late and I might not have I'll read check it that. Clearly, I'll check, yeah. I didn't read it again but I shouldn't do that, should I? I shouldn't trust. The things don't change between it's when you look at change. them. It did change. It moved from it being something looking at quality of life, where we really had that as but part of But you had that. changed that. No, 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 no. We'd made sure it was part of the, you know, something that enabled... It was, it was looking at quality things. of loud outcomes, but it's been changed when it got into the Summer Foundation. Oh, because so the one I, I read last week was what came no, from directly from it. us. No, read it. Okay. It's changed. It's changed. It's moved out the sort of quality of life bit that we were really keen on. And keen I on want it being on so yeah. Okay, I'll look at it. Yeah. And then I, when I browsed it at like 11.30 last night. Um, so do you want to talk about it, John? The scholarship? I'm happy to if you want to announce it. Yeah, just so yeah. everyone watch their email. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, yeah. We've got a little bit of a to get who agree on all that wording and whatever. And it's the Alan Martin Scholarship. Yeah. Yes, it's on the website. Is it? There's a link that says... Yeah, but it doesn't have anything apart from what we had originally. It's just so it's good. Tom. I read the stuff you sent yesterday. 
Well, I haven't heard that. We just need to burst them. But John was saying that she thinks the description of what it's targeting has changed compared to what they sent through. Quality of life, whatever the. Which I didn't. We didn't intend to do. No. Yeah. We, well, we thought look we at had it exactly the oh, that's same. The sort of, that's the sort of feedback we need, actually. Yeah. We're actually well, I thought. The meaning. Yeah. There's some meaning in it without. And we I know didn't you wanted to. We, no. I mean, really, we wanted it broad, and it was really about quality of life. The quality of life is really important. It's that's what it's all about. Yeah. We. I mean, that's the yeah. whole end point. Tar- you know. I haven't read what you said last night. So somehow it's got a little bit. The wording. Okay. Got a little bit. If, if you've got a chance to put the, to at least even alter what the ruling is, if a suggestion that you have, that would be great, because I'm not going to remember that myself. I'll remember the quality of life bit, but I'll do that, yeah. And, no, and I want, we wanted to make sure that before we actually did the final version, because yeah. we have actually changed sort of the scope of what we're putting yeah. in. Yeah. Um, and I mean, it adds stuff like accommodation, that's right, because that's a foundation thing, but it kind of so made it a bit more... And also, Joan thinks that the students have disappeared. Now, I didn't think the students had disappeared. Well, it said that you have to have, like before we had it, you had to be a member of the Bureau or the yeah. member of the Bureau. And, and this has looked at it, you have to be working in the area of ABI Rehab. Now, we have a lot of students who want to work in the area of ABI Rehab, <laughs> but they're actually not at the moment. Oh, you're right, it might be misinterpreted. So, it has to be, it has so to, to be, the research has to if be you can in think the area. About that, yeah. If you can think about how that encompasses because obviously your students are going to be one of the people well, who are going to be interested in applying. Yep, yeah, exactly. Because, you, know, you, you stop seeing this stuff like this. And there's the ASBE, I mean, um, Sue told me about the ASBE students group she spoke to the other night and how it's really been, there were so yeah. many the kids that were wanting to be part said, of it, they actually can't get into it because there's That's no right. spots. But the important things that we've said is that you, it's for people who don't, who aren't doing a project that has a lot of funding. Yes, yes. That's what's important. Go away. Go away. Yeah, and yeah. that's one of yeah. my worries, is that we'll get that same situation again yeah. where well, we have... Says that, but you want to make sure we're capturing those young Absolutely. people this could become their passion. Yeah. And that's what we thought we'd done. Yeah. So yeah, it's I'll have a look. The system and it's coming. So we haven't needed... Yeah. 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 We wanted to put a response to it because, you know, as I said, we want to be able to make this align. We just need to fill in all the. Now, Joan's just saying I should mention it, and I will I mention it. So we're sending, it'll come out in October no, or no, mid September. Start of September. And that's right. And Assuming that they get Stop the wonderful conversation. They're not going to stop. Do you want to? Do you want me to clink? You'll have to clap or say shh. shh. First question, Julie. This is so exciting. Uh, there's three of us here that come from a from a community choir, the High Street Bells, and a lot of the people who attend have an acquired brain injury, not always traumatic, 
Uh, we already have had a little conference and decided we have more social snacking. <laughs> Great. We already have a Facebook page. We take photos, but we could do more by way of certificates and maybe membership cards. So, um, yeah. But we are therapists, yes. and I guess the, the question would be, for those of us who aren't the therapists, and some of our people, many of our people don't have, they, they're past sort of active therapy, they're yeah. you know, just living. And it's, some of this has to be maybe translated or interpreted for us because we can't sit down and go through that whole process. And I mm. guess I'm just curious, maybe at some stage you'd address the issue of how you can brief community groups yeah. such as ours about how to influence this sort of uh, approach? It's a great, great question and it's a really, really excellent goal. And in fact, in a way, this is, is much, from my perspective anyway, is not difficult to translate because I bet you can describe the people you're yep. in the singing group with. I bet you know what, how the singing makes them feel. You all share that. We have privacy concerns that you wouldn't have. Yeah. We need to be able to figure out how to do it. Yeah, yeah exactly. So I think there, there are ways of doing that. Awareness of just recognising, you know, the biggest thing to recognise is that people with brain injury are like us. Yeah. <laughs> They're not well, different. Notice, yeah, can of course, I, course I, you do. Can I, can I put it in a bit of a plug It's a, that was such a simple thing to, to have suggested and it's yeah. such a good thing. It's a wonderful social snack mm -hmm. that in fact you actually show that you're connected with the community. So a gorgeous comment. But I do think there is something around writing about how do you include people who have um, experiences that are sometimes challenging experience, how do you include them in everyday community um, groups? Now we are, we're, we're actually working on some um, just about to start or get the ethics through about actually educating the community. One of my pets hate, well one of the things that I want to work on is I actually think why we haven't succeeded in helping people to make social connections that hold on is the fact that we've only worked at, on one side of the equation. The other side of the equation is the community itself and we really need to be working with the individual in their own community and helping them to educate people about what their strengths and weaknesses are, whatever, however you want to say it. We need to help communities, mainstream services, be able to work with people who are not exactly the same as they are. And so this particular piece of research is actually going to address the person and what we can actually work with with, with the person, but also the community they live in. So the community, instead of thinking that this person maybe is a little bit to be afraid of because they're a little different, but educating community around, this is why this happens, <coughs> understanding it. And hopefully then it's building social capacity, it's building that, the, the social capacity of our community. Because people avoid people who are a little bit different. I'm avoided all the time. <laughs> so I think that's wonderful. Do the membership card and we will talk about this actually.
I'm seeing Jenny, yes. aren't I, next week, yeah. dynamic I think yes. that's the thing we must remember which means it's also malleable No, actually, I do, there are some, some examples absolutely in this that I actually can now do, I can, I can walk much faster than I used to be able to. It is there. It absolutely is there. To, sometimes to the extent to my own surprise that I can actually, I can, it's interesting, the, the, the walking, the walking more quickly, the walking without support was in these, um, um, interviews, there was still a sense of loss over sporting activities for many people or um, recognising the need to change their sporting activity or um, uh, one of the things that's interesting and, and is that people seem to, some, well some of these people, um, it was the loss of social connection during sport that was a really big issue for them and some of those old friends. So, so you no, know, it does. It did come up. In fact, if you look at the, the paper in the table, there's quite a lot of, you know, I can now walk faster, I can walk by myself, I'm going to one day be able to run as a goal. Did you see any other people who said that? Yeah, yeah. In fact, in the interviews, I only know because we've got the, the descriptions of all of the individuals and I have those and because I interviewed them all, um, anyone, there is nothing that says, um, defines them an attribute as being confined to a wheelchair or, or there's talk about mobility and access, but not about the actual wheelchair itself, which is interesting, I think. Yes, me. Yeah, it's a small Bond, window, you know? yeah. So Chris hears and understands you. Watch his face. He can't see, he can't speak, he can't move. But tell him something about yourself. You stand that side of the chair and then tell his spine. So it's 
So then the conversation, because Chris being the thing once that starts, the government or something. But I don't think you can underestimate the power of um, courage, the courage yeah. that it takes for some people to come and see someone else. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. So I think you need a, a, a quick bite strategy to, um, to engage so the person can engage. Yeah, I think that's such excellent advice, um, Mary. And that's one of the things that I think it's actually working with families to learn those things, to actually also then use those as strategies to actually help support other support workers to uh, introduce. As well with the social snaps, like Mary is the queen of social <laughs> <laughs> For going in with Chris with such a high needs disability and being non-verbal and everything, it was really quite confronting for me because I've never worked with anyone like that before. Yeah. But you walk into his room and it's just overwhelming. You know, there's photos, there's medals, there's you know old school memorabilia and newspaper clippings and everything, and it just completely yeah. gives you an idea of who Chris is and what he's about. Yeah. And it's just amazing. Yeah. Just yeah, and the and the nice part then is that, that you actually spend time getting to know Chris in that context of having a sense of who he is to start with. But then you develop more and more knowledge about Chris and the fact yeah. that he can be a bit tricky or all of those sorts of things. So you build that within that within that context. It's such a good example. Yeah. Absolutely right. I, I think there's two issues around that. I think having stated it really clearly as you have is really important, is recognising that we don't fix something forever and we don't do that with ourselves, that it is ongoing and it's one of the longest term discussions I've had with the TAC in all my life is that, that in fact it doesn't, once you get it right once doesn't mean for any of us that you'll actually just be able to transfer that. Um, so it is an ongoing process and that's going to be the challenge with the Nas National Disability Insurance Scheme issues is how do we make um, support available as appropriate? As I said, you know, Emily was really ready for another, if you like, dose of support and working on things and then continued to improve herself in that environment. But we, did, we do need to add another activity 
And we do need to think about differences with that. It's, a, it's absolutely an ongoing process as it is for us. Um, and there'll be different things that emerge that actually come out as challenges for her in the next situation that we work with. But I think sometimes we're scared to, to stop for a while and that's what I think is important to do as well, is that we don't have to go continuously going in, in, you know, bursts is really important as well. I think working with people who provide support is, is the key to actually a lot of what we're talking about. It's also, so the two things that I think have been undercooked in this many years of working with people has been the working with the community and the working with people who continue to be part of that person's life or provide supports and not getting burnt out by that because that's really challenging. That sort of work in the community environment and work with um, support workers, it can be really, really exhausting sometimes because you feel like you do it again and again. You know, Mary, you know how important it is to have consistency in support workers that work with, with Chris and have, having somebody who recognises that, somebody who's, who's keen enough to come along today, all of those things. But, you know, that, that sometimes isn't, isn't the case and there's a lot we need to do to support that group of professionals, I think. Yeah. I've always had problems with the word rehabilitation. Yeah, me too. It's <laughs> yeah. Um, because it's regarded as people see it as time bound, this burst. You know, I've always talked about it as a rehabilitative life process. Yeah. And I think the news, I think it was you, Tom, I got restorative. Yeah. Exactly, we have, yeah, it ebbs and flows. I totally agree and in fact that was one of the things, the challenge of language and the challenge of actually people with an acquired brain injury come from a health system and the health system utilises the terminology in us. and then when you come into the community you're absolutely right, it's actually, it's really your life journey that we're working with. And that I get a bit, it sounds, starts to sound wanky because people use journey for lots of things now. And, and you said the language we use is a really big challenge. Um, restorative might be one of those words. I don't know. Does anybody have good, ex good ideas? Good words or good <laughs> <laughs> I know you have lots of good ideas, Jane. But words that, because that, often, you know, even for the people that I talk to, they, they were very happy to see the end of rehab. It was not, it wasn't a great <laughs> experience. Yeah. 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 There's a lot of people who don't like the word disability no, too. Yeah. I mean, I like, just because I work across, you know, it, it's, it's really tough. When you use the word restorative, Disability. 
Yeah, and it, it always has been, although I think it's actually a little bit easier now than it has been. I think all of this is measurable. And I think one of the things that we often don't do is measure what we're working on. I think we often measure something else um, because there's a measure that somebody says we should use. Um, with Emily, everything was measurable so that we could actually graph it and show it and there was not one thing that she worked on that wasn't actually um, measurable with a reliable and valid tool. So it's knowing the tools, I think that's important, but it's also being really careful about not choosing loads of tools, because I think what we do is we overburden people with assessment. We spend a lot of time assessing. One of the best tools is observation and being able to look at behaviours and say, okay, what behaviours do I need to count here? That's really reliable and really valid. For, for people like the people we work with. I just follow up to a question on that then is actually in terms of framing that, like the simple things are often the most skilled things to do yeah. you know, when it comes to this stuff. Like open-ended questions for a lot of people are very difficult to frame because they're so used to sort of wanting to have a yes-no answer and things yeah. like that. So do you have anything to say then in terms of who can conceptualise this and who can put this in train? Because I think it is a highly skilled mm -hmm. um, thing to do. Well, one of the things... <laughs> no, no, but I think one of the things that you do need to do is we actually need to recognise that it is something that needs support and training and it's not a one-off. You know, we've, we've spent years of our lives, all of us, with people having developed a training or resource package and saying, here it is, do this and you'll be fine. It doesn't actually work that way. And if there's one thing that I think training needs to be around, it needs to be contextualised, it needs to be around individuals. You actually can't, I mean, there's principles that underpin everything in a way that are actually around citizenship and human rights. If you don't have that, if that's not in your value system, you probably wouldn't want to be working in this area. But then, there, then I actually really believe training needs to be with people. It's, it's, it's that whole, um, you can't learn it out of books. Now, it, it can be supported by appropriate resources online, those sorts of things, by um, doing something and then having the chance to talk, with, talk it through with somebody, um, all of those things. But I do think um, training is, is, needs to be on a um, prolonged basis. So it's prolonged engagement and it's individualised. We're finding that out with supported decision making, that we thought we could actually work with a group of people and help them to be facilitators of decision making with people with very severe 
um, cognitive disability and they can improve on the, um, if you like, the testing questionnaire, but their behaviours are not changing without the sort of side-by-side -side support. And that's a sad answer, but it's the truth. We can spend it a lot, we can waste a hell of a lot of money developing packages that we put people through that don't make any difference to behaviour. I'd prefer to actually think about building that up. It's like any skill. You know, if you haven't been on the ski slopes for a while, don't go. <laughs> You'll break something unless you do something to prepare yourself for it. It's that, it's a real skill base. Um, and I do think there's something around people's um, value systems that does, um, it's, it's probably what you pick, Mary, about people that you work with, that, that is really important in this environment and not everybody has it. I've sadly come to that conclusion and you can't, I don't believe you can train values. I think we might have to leave it there because it's nearly 10 o'clock and everyone has probably got up. And I need to make one announcement. Yep. And, the, and before just intermakes that announcement, as you go, um, because there's going to be a fair bit of time to pack up the room and we all need to get out of here, as you're leaving, can I ask you all to pick up a chair and move it, not in front of one of the tables, but move it to the side so that then the crew can put the tables together and rearrange the chairs. But if you can pick up one chair and move it away from tables, that would be fantastic. Thank you. And before, just I'll make your announcement and then I'll say thank you. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> this is a really important announcement and because it's around, as you will have known, that when Vibira... Um, was being really active, we had a scholarship for Vibira, which was um, a scholarship to support work in the area of acquired brain injury for people with acquired brain injury. And our focus was really on any um, research that, that aimed at improving quality of life for those people. And as you know, we've moved the education component of Vibira breakfast sessions to the Summer Foundation, and we still have a scholarship and the scholarship has, is entitled the Alan Martin Scholarship as recognition of a person who was particularly important in the Vibira story, who set Vibira up and kept it going. Um, and um, the fact that Vibira isn't still going is probably really a reflection of the fact that Alan was so important in that process. But we still have the scholarship and you will be getting in your emails a call for applications for that scholarship at the beginning of September, so not long from now. And those um, applications will be reviewed by the scholarship subcommittee and um, an awardee decided on. And people can apply if, they're, um, if they have a clinical research pro project that they're doing. So if you're a clinician out there with a research project or if you're a student who really wants to develop um, your skills, who has a research idea that, that you're working on. Um, it's not to, to top up funding. If you've got a huge NH and MRC grant, of course everybody <laughs> does, um, then please don't just use the, the scholarship to top that up. It's really to support people who would struggle to do that research. Um, and the 
successful um, scholarship winner will be announced on the 27th of November at our first Alan Martin lecture that will be de delivered by Barry Willer um, at around five o'clock or sometime like Details. that. To emerge in the email. <laughs> but just be aware if you have, you know, postgraduate students who need some support to continue their work or who won't be able to do a project, that in fact that scholarship will be coming out. Um, if you have a great idea and you think that scholarship could really help, then um, certainly um, put a, uh, the application will come out with that too. So watch this space. And at that, thank you so much for Jacinta for such a wonderful, engaging and educative talk. Perhaps some restorative work for us as therapists to go ahead with. Um, and yeah, it's just been wonderful. We'd love to talk to you for longer, but we can't. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Mom.